Hi everyone, I'm actually lucky enough to be talking to you from Miami, Florida, where I attended the Autism Speaks Miami Walk on Sunday. Autism Speaks is a partner in the Autism Brain Net reserved a spot at the resource fair where there were 40 service providers, research studies, and sites for resources for families. I don't know how many people were at the walk. It was a lot. And over 100 people signed up with the Autism Brain Net. That might be a new record. Last week, the Autism Science Foundation held their fourth annual day of learning at the New York Athletic Club in New York. I know that not everyone was able to travel to New York for the event, so I'm going to provide a quick recap. A video of all the speakers will be posted in a few weeks on the ASF website, but there's nothing quite like being there in person. There were nine TED-style talks given by leading researchers studying everything from early signs and symptoms to females to housing and education. TED-style, in case you're not familiar with it, is a style where instead of going into specific detail on data or particular findings, which would take a while and maybe get too much into the weeds for most people, each speaker is given a 10-minute time slot, which is more of a review of a topic of interest, and it also sometimes combines personal experience or experience from those they work with. This year's event got rave reviews from people that attended, which only means we need to up our game next year. Wendy Chung from the Simons Foundation opened the talks with Autism Research, Where Are They Now? She introduced everyone to the concept of the autisms rather than autism, which was a theme that was recurrent throughout the day. Autisms can be separated out by age, gender, and of course, different symptoms. I have heard people with autism are each a unique snowflake, but given the negative connotation of the word snowflake lately, and I really don't know why, let's just say that each person with autism has different strengths and weaknesses. Each person exhibits different symptoms with different severities. As we know from brain tissue research, even across causes of autism, there's common core biological mechanisms underlying autism. But let's face it, some people need more help than others. And as long as I'm recording this on World Autism Awareness Day, some people need acceptance, some people need awareness, and some people need help. And even within the range of help, that can mean help to communicate, help to live independently, help to get or maintain a job, or help just to not hurt themselves or other people on a daily basis. The issue of diversity came up over and over again throughout today's walk. I met people with autism who are living independently as well as those who were adults who are still living with their families and also barely able to communicate or sleep through the night. For those people, acceptance and awareness are the least of their issues. But back to the day of learning. The next speaker, Dr. James McPartland, who's also on the Scientific Advisory Board of the Autism Science Foundation, is the PI of the largest multi-site study in the US, which is investigating a biological mechanism of how to measure differences in individuals with autism. He's using something called electroencephalography, or EEG, which records brain waves through a cap which a person wears around their head. Can EEG provide insights on what makes each person with autism different so that they can get to the right treatment right away rather than trying dozens that may not be effective as they had hoped? I have to say, at first I was skeptical. Who has access to an EEG machine? Well, as it turns out, every hospital in the U.S. has one. Not only is Dr. McPartland going to look at brainwave activity once, but across time to examine things like IQ, gender, age, and yes, stability of this measure across time. Eventually, this biomarker may be used to look at some very early response to treatment to make sure clinicians are on the right track as they start an intervention. I think everyone was blown away by the presentation on biomarkers for the next speaker, Dr. Bob Schultz from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. 
Dr. Schultz, who spent his entire career trying to understand autism, worked with vision scientists and computer researchers to better understand signs and symptoms of autism using newer technology. These can include cameras and video systems, where the motion of individuals with autism, including their gestures, possible stereotypies, and nonverbal communications can be tracked and analyzed digitally. Because motor symptoms are the earliest feature that emerge in individuals with autism, including deficits in motor learning and motor imitation, using digital images to both quantify these differences for intervention, as well as help in diagnosis can be helpful. It's another way not only to objectively measure symptoms, but also better understand the actions of a person with autism based on their situation. The images can be so detailed it can look at facial expressions, and it can also be tied to the actions of another person in a situation. The videos were pretty amazing. I hope you get a chance to watch this presentation. The next speaker kept on the topic of different needs and different speeds. Amy Lutz spoke on the housing issue that's affecting hundreds and thousands of people with autism. 270,000 are on wait lists. 500,000 of those with intellectual and developmental disorders need residential care. But that residential care is becoming harder and harder to come by. One of the options of housing is congregate settings where multiple people live together. These congregate settings can be things like group homes, farms, or group apartments that are not necessarily considered community living. They may mostly serve people with autism, and in this way they're not considered integrated into the community. These places may need things like gates, sheltered workshops, and things where sleeping arrangements are clustered. It's important to remember that the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, or CMS, the agency which provides funding on behalf of individuals with autism on housing, ensures the right of privacy, respect, autonomy, life choice, and individual choice. But the final rule of interpretation of what that means is left to the states. There have been cases of abuse in places of congregate settings, and this is causing people to be very concerned about whether or not these settings are meeting the needs of everyone with autism, or if they are appropriate, or if they impinge in someone's civil liberties. For example, congregate settings usually have a regular mealtime, which means people don't have the right to eat whenever they want. This is a difficult situation. It balances the needs of people on one side of the spectrum of autism with those who may not have the same needs. It's important that the interpretation of the CMS rules don't take everything off the table and limit the ability of people to live where they want, be it congregate settings or community living. Just like interventions, there's not a one-size-fits-all solution for housing in people with autism. The next couple of presentations focused on causes of autism particularly modifiable risk factors. And when I say modifiable, it's not modifying the broad spectrum of autism features, it's modifying disability. The leading researcher in this field is Craig Neuschaefer, and if you want the best, you ask the best to present. He provided examples of environmental risk factors that were reported in the media because they quote unquote doubled the risk of having a child with autism. But when you look at the overall risk, even when it was doubled, it still didn't account for a huge amount of the variability in autism. More importantly, in many cases, it was only the highest exposure level that conferred risk. This is the case in air pollution. That means if you move the distribution of exposures from high to medium, that's where you can probably make the most gains in terms of modification of risk. These risk factors have to be weighed against the risk of not being exposed. I don't think there's much risk in not being exposed to high levels of air pollution or toxic chemicals, but what about the risk of not getting an SSRI during pregnancy if you're depressed? 
This is where it's important to think about the magnitude of risk and whether or not it should be modified. Next, our first postdoctoral fellow to present on the day of learning, Dr. Donna Whirling, talked about how being female might confer some protection of diagnosis of autism. Females with autism may have all sorts of other issues and may be underdiagnosed, but no matter how you cut it or how you ascertain females with autism, more males are still diagnosed and we still don't know why. This is why ASF is funding the Autism Sisters Project, which will look at the genetic protective factor, but I have to say it's unlikely to be one gene. And my guess is if that it is one gene, it's likely to be linked to something like IQ, because girls diagnosed with autism tend to have lower IQs. We're also funding a fellowship on the female protective effect, which we'll be announcing in the next couple weeks. This new fellowship is taking a different approach in understanding the spectrum of symptoms of females and males and what makes symptoms different. Finally, Céline Saulnier talked about how adaptive behavior is so important to people with autism. Adaptive behavior is the doing, not the can-do. So someone can communicate. Are they doing it in a socially appropriate way? Do they interact with people, especially peers? So they may have the motor skills to put on a shirt, but can they get dressed themselves? This is so important because it's really the bottom line. You can have all the prerequisite skills in the world, but if you don't execute them, it really doesn't matter, does it? These skills can be modifiable, meaning that they can be taught. It takes teaching the environment that people are in, maximizing adaptive behavior by fostering the right environment. A very smart attendee, I won't name him in case he doesn't want to be identified, mentions that employers are valuing sales and social skills more and more than systematizing skills that can be replaced with the computer. This makes people with high-functioning autism very, very challenging to find a job. Last but not least was David Mandel from the University of Pennsylvania who talked about what parents can do to improve their relationship with teachers. Boy, everyone was on the edge of their seats. Instead of just the regular IEP meeting of each side coming with their issues and sitting down at a table and hashing it out, ASF-funded researcher Ghazi Azad basically mediated the IEP meeting ahead of time by asking parents and teachers what was going on in the classroom and working out and what was going on at home and where the differences were and what their interpretation of the different needs were. It made the IEP meeting go so much more smoothly. And guess what? Parents and teachers saw different problems. I mean, that's not surprising, but it's good that it was described and documented or it won't ever get better. I'm going to put the published findings of that ASF study on the podcast site if people want to access the study itself. But it's also helpful to realize that these studies were conducted in different public school settings and not always in the ideal situation of parents who have all the time in the world and teachers who are not overworked and underpaid. So basically it's reality. If you are at the day of learning and you have anything you want to add, please send me a note. It wasn't meant to replace being there in person or even watching the videos of the presentations. And also, when you distill nine 10-minute presentations down to one 10-minute podcast, you're going to lose something. So my apologies in advance. Stay tuned this week for lots of updates on the ASF page for scientific findings. Thanks for listening this week, and I'm sorry if you missed the day of learning. If you're in the New York area, try to come next year. It's usually in March or April. Talk to you next week.